Thanks, Lisa. When you came in, you should have gotten one of these little fellers, which is the last two weeks of the Companion to Our Small Group series. I hope you've been encouraged by that. I know John worked really hard on this, and I, a number of people have told me that this, this series and the small groups and the discussions have been real helpful for them. We're going through First um, Corinthians 12 to 14 in a series on spiritual gifts, and the reason we're on this passage is that it's just next. Um, now, the main idea of this passage is that both vitality and order are critical in the movement of Jesus for spiritually healthy people in spiritually healthy churches. That it, and that's especially true in how we use our spiritual gifts. So vitality and order are both really important. You've got to have them both. And it, this is especially true in how we, do, how we use our spiritual gifts. Now, before I say anything else, I think we need to stop and deal with the verses that are distracting everybody. Okay? Um, verses 34 and 35 are, in my view, the most difficult um, gender-oriented verses in all of Scripture. Um, where it says this, and I'll read it again in case you didn't get it the first time. Women should remain silent in the churches, but they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Um, now, the, the first reaction that you ought to have if you've been here for six or more weeks, after the immediate feeling of outrage, um, is you should feel a little confused, because if you've been here for a number of weeks, you are here for the sermon on chapter 11. And in chapter 11, just two pages before this, the Apostle Paul says that women are free and should be encouraged to prophesy and pray in the church in front of everybody. Um, and when he says people should be instructed and encouraged in a sort of teaching ministry in chapter 14, through, that's through prophecy, the thing he just affirmed two pages earlier, women are definitely invited to do. They cannot be prohibited from doing so as long as they do it within, um, with, within a respectful manner is what that chapter is all about. And so these verses are a little confusing, what exactly do they mean? How should they be applied? And it'd be great to just be like, well, we'll just, just get out your black Sharpie marker and we'll just draw a line over them and, and, we're, and we're done, you know? Every, you know it, most, people, most people read the Bible with a highlighter in one hand and a black Sharpie marker in the other. They highlight the ones they like and they cross out the ones they don't. The Sharpie marker usually is in our head and the highlighter is in our hand. But, um, so here's what I want to do. Let me give you, I want to give you a couple of options for how to handle this. I've spent a bunch of time reading, a bunch of time spent on my intern reading, and I studied this in seminary too, but still, we went back and looked at this. There, there's a couple, there's actually a lot of ink has been spilt on this. There's a lot of ideas for what we ought to do with this passage, um, but there's a, a couple, I think, most significant possibilities. One is, and this is going to sound like heresy at first, but just hang with me, okay, for just a couple of minutes. And that is that it may actually be that these two verses are what's called, are an insertion into First Corinthians, or what Bible scholars call an interpolation. That is something that was put in later. Um, now, in most cases when Bible scholars of various kinds say that something has been put in the Bible, you should be, I think, very suspicious of that. Because in, um, 
scholarly Bible work, there's two kinds of what's called criticism of the Bible. There's what's called higher criticism and lower criticism. In higher criticism, it is a, it is a literary analysis in which there is no physical evidence for whether or not something is in or out. They just look at the argument and the flow of the literature, the writing, and they say, oh, that had to come from this author and this from this author and this, and, and they can't all really be real. But there's actually no physical evidence that it was, it was ever not in there. Lower criticism, which in my view is much higher criticism, much better and much more certain criticism, is when you actually look at the physical evidence of the manuscripts. You go back and you look at the 52,000 New Testament manuscripts that we have, and you compare them with each other based on what families they come from, when they were written, which one's older, which one's newer, because the, the newer ones have mistakes recopied in them, obviously, so the older the better. If, if, and then there's, and there's, it's a whole science I can't get in all right now. And you look at the physical evidence. Are, is it in there, isn't it? For example, and this will hurt your feelings if you don't know this already, in John's Gospel, at the end of chapter 7, there's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Remember this story? She's caught in adultery. She's dragged out. They're like, we're going to stone her, and Jesus draws in the sand, and then he says, he who is not without sin casts the first stone, and everybody walks away, right? It's great. You know, there's skits at children's camps, and whole Bible, vacation Bible school curriculums are based on it, and so on. But it's, it's not actually probably wasn't in the original John. In fact, if you look in your Bible right now, it, you'll see a little bracket in there that says, um, these verses are not in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of John. The Bible translators are ruthlessly honest with us about what's there and what isn't. And now that doesn't mean Jesus didn't do that. It didn't mean that didn't happen, right? It just means that when John wrote John, he probably didn't include those verses. That's all. Now, the problem with this passage—let me see if I have that slide. Awesome. The problem with this passage is— whether or not these verses were in there is very hard to determine. If you look here, this is called the textual apparatus in a Greek—this is a Greek New Testament. Notice that's not English? That's Greek. Okay. So, see right here, it says 34 and 35b. Okay? So, every Bible passage is rated A, B, or C. A is, we definitely know this is the right reading. That's how it should be translated in your Bible. B is, we're pretty sure— we're pretty sure. And then C is, we don't, we don't really know. <laughs> Let's do something. Okay? And so, and then, and so he's here, it says, B, include verses 34 and 35 here, meaning right there, between 37 and 34. And then it has all these kind of things. See that? Those are all manuscripts. Those are all ancient Greek manuscripts in a library somewhere. And in all these manuscripts, it's the, these verses are in and they're there. And then, it's, then you get down here, see it? Verses 34 following 1440. So like five verses later. It, and then there's these—and these are a bunch of other manuscripts, and that's the Western family of manuscripts. And so you see, when you, when you compare all the New Testament manuscripts, in some cases, it's right where we have it here, and a, a, so a number of other manuscripts, and it's, a, it's in a different place. But there's no manuscripts that don't have it at all. You see, if there were three or four really old manuscripts that didn't have it at all, we'd know the answer. We'd know for sure it wasn't in the original 1 Corinthians. Some pious guy who thought that it's really important to make sure it's clear to women they shouldn't talk in church, put that in there, and we'd know that. But we see, that's the problem. We don't have those manuscripts, so we don't know. So it's, it gets a little speculative from here. It may be that a very early scribe put this in, being very well-meaning, and, in, and then it got moved around a couple different places. Um, Gordon Fee, one commentator, says, because there's confusion—see, here's the thing. There's no other verse in the entire Bible that has this kind of confusion about it. That it's in all the manuscripts, but it's in different places. There's no other verse like that. And so some commentators have said, that's because it wasn't in there. But you see, without a couple manuscripts that, that show us that, that show us physical evidence that's on there, it, you can't know that. So it's still a little speculative. So it might be 
it might be that these verses weren't in the original 1 Corinthians. We don't know. The other option is, since chapter 11 explicitly says women are invited to have a ministry of instruction and encouragement in the church through prophecy and prayer— it's, it's ridiculous to think that Paul, one of the most intelligent writers of the ancient world, didn't realize that two pages earlier he had encouraged women to prophesy and pray in the church, and now he's just kind of going back on it. Okay? You, you'd have to be really snide to think that. So, it, so what does it mean? And a, a number of commentators who believe it should be in the text— have said in other epistles of Paul, um, he puts in the realm of the authority of the elders judging, you know, the leadership of the church and judging things like prophecies. And in Paul's writing, the role of elder is reserved for men. It's the only role in the church that the Bible seems to reserve for men. And it's the only role in High Point Church that is reserved for men. But if they're the ones given the spiritual authority and responsibility to judge prophecies, then you could make sense of this passage that way, that women pray and prophesy just like everybody else in the whole church, but when it comes to that moment where the elders are supposed to step up and do the process of discerning whether, hey, church, you should listen to that prophecy. We think that's from God and it's for us or not. In that process, the elders are supposed to be free of accusation and inquiry from other people in the church, especially their wives. Because in Greek, the word for woman and wife are the same word. So you can read that. Listen, wives, don't question your husband who's an elder while he's trying to judge prophecies in front of the gathered church. It is not helpful. Okay? If you have a problem with how he's doing, just go ahead and ask him at home. Let it be a domestic dispute, not a dispute in the church. Okay? Now, frankly, I don't like either of those solutions, um, and I don't know the answer, and we're just going to have to leave it there. But here's what it does tell us. It does tell us that in this issue, like in lots of other issues, the Apostle Paul, just as we all the gathered church— we are stuck with the reality that we, ha- we cannot solve the problem of vitality versus order. It's not a problem we can solve. It's a tension we have to manage. There is no easy answer. There is no, let everybody do whatever they want, or control everybody as best you can. The fact is, is that in, in the church, because in the gospel, there is a ton of vitality and there is order. And you see that in this passage. Paul is intentionally protecting the vitality of the church. If you have the gift of speaking tongues, do it. If you have gift, do it. And then, and then here's a couple of rules for how to make sure it's ordered. Why? Because he's trying to protect both. It's really important to have um, this distinction clear in your mind, the difference between attention to be managed and a problem to be solved. I took this from Andy Stanley. It's in his leadership writings, but it works really helpfully here. And that is, there are some things in life that are simply problems to be solved. For example, if you get a bill— that's not attention to be managed. That is a bill to be paid. It's a problem to be solved. You write a check or you put in your whatever and there you go, right? Um, if you're wondering if your dorm sheets should be washed after you've been sleeping in them for eight months, the answer is yes. That's not attention to be managed. That is a problem to be solved unless the tension is fighting the hordes of bacteria and insects living in them, right? There, I mean, there's a number of things in life that are, like if you did something wrong and your spouse is mad at you because you were a jerk, Right? That's not attention to be managed. That's a problem to be solved. You go repent and apologize and ask for forgiveness so there can be reconciliation. There's no tension. It's just a problem to be solved. You just solve it, right? But there's a lot of things, a ton of things in life that aren't like that. They're not problems that you can just solve. They will always be with you because they're not problems to be solved. They're tensions to be managed. And we all believe this already. 
right? Nicky Gumbel in the Alpha Course tells a story about um, how his kid was in like a six or seven year old a soccer club thing, and they went to play a scrimmage, and so he shows up, and they, apparently they had a, they had this guy who was a really cool coach, and so he shows up, and he's the only guy there because he's a pastor and he can cut out during the day, but then it's all moms, so it's like him and all these moms and all their kids, but the guy who's the coach got in an hour wrong in his schedule, so he didn't show up. So here's all these six and seven year olds like going buck nuts um, without anything to occupy themselves. Nobody knows where the coach is. And of course, a man has to do this, right? So all the women turn to Nicky Gumbel and they're like, why don't you get the boys playing soccer? So he's like, okay. So they, you know, they put a couple bags or something for goals or whatever, and you know, they start playing soccer. But Nicky Gumbel doesn't know the kids. He doesn't know their names. He doesn't have a whistle. He doesn't have cones. He doesn't have anything, right? And so what happens? the thing just starts devolving very quickly, right? So some kid gets tripped, and he starts crying, and another kid goes, that's a foul, sir! And the other kid's dribbling off to score a goal, and then it goes kind of out near the edge, but there's no line. And so one kid goes, sir, that's out! And the other kid says, no, it's still in, and they just keep playing, and he doesn't have a whistle anyway. He doesn't know the kid's name to call him back. And before, you know, there's kids strewn about, injured, and parents getting ready to throw handbags at him. And then, right when it's sort of at the worst moment, the coach rides up on his bike, and and he's got cones and a whistle on And he stops the game, gets all the kids in the middle, puts the cones there, puts them on teams, divides them up, blows the whistle, off they go. And then, then they have a splendid time, right? And you see, the point of that is that we have fallen into the romanticist notion that what really breeds vitality is freedom. That is license. If I'm free to do whatever I want, if I have license to express myself however I want, I'll live such a vital, alive, loving life. And that's actually—actually, it's, actually, it's not—that's not just false. That's actually the opposite of the truth. The truth is, is that vitality thrives the most within ordered boundaries. Right? I mean, how, how can I best express my vital love— for my wife until I order the fact that she's the only one that's supposed to get my romance. Once I'm locked into a single thing, I can all, whatever energy I've got goes one direction. And that's the truth all the way through life about vitality and order. They strengthen each other. They feed off each other when they're held in tension. For example, we already believe this about athletes and artists, don't we? Right? You've probably heard somebody play like a high-level piano piece, and there's something that just didn't really sound right about it. Technically, they were great, but the passion didn't come through. But then you've heard other musicians play, and they were, they were incredible. But the thing is, they didn't just play with passion, did they? There were years and years and years of built skill there. When those two things came together— Something great happened. Same thing with athletes, right? If you look at all the top-level athletes, do any of them play with apparently no passion? No. The, we, I get frustrated that some of them, their passion seems to be mostly about themselves, but they play with passion. And, but yet, there's nobody who wins just out of passion. If you could win just out of passion, especially passion for yourself, then Jermichael Finley would be the best receiver in the National Football League. Right? And he's not, right? I'm just, I'm just picking on Packers. Um, but, but, I mean, the, but that's the reality. The reality is, is that without the discipline, without the, without the focus, without the order, without that, nobody's amazing. They both have to come together, right? Same thing is true with, people, with things that we think are boring, like business and meetings. The same thing's true. That's what, uh, true in art and athletics. You need, for example, um, what makes for a good, what makes for a terrible meeting? Why are bi- most business meetings terrible? They're terrible, terrible, terrible. Why is that? 
Well, because they're both poorly run and there's no passion. And most of the two things that make for a good meeting aren't in most business meetings. Right? There are, there's positions in business meetings who's in charge, and there may even be policies about those meetings. But there's no true focused order and structure that's moving everybody in the right directions in the right ways. There's usually not good leadership in meetings. And there's no passion in meetings. People express their passion at the water cooler after the meeting. There's meetings before the meetings. There's meetings after the meetings. But it doesn't happen in the meetings, right? That's why Jack Welch, when he was teaching on leadership, he said, you need to do everything possible to make sure that there's no meeting after the meeting, that the meeting happens in the meeting. Why? And he said, you, and he said, and, and Heibel says this, and, and, and Lynch, you know, a bunch of people would rather say, you've got to have candor in the meeting. People have to say what they really think. They've got to feel like this meeting matters. What we say here is going to actually happen. Whatever we decide together, we're all going to do. And it matters. I'm going to spend months of my life executing what we decide in the next two hours. And when you get that in a meeting, when you get the ability for people to say what they really think, and you have somebody who's really leading, they're leading you in a direction discussion, they're calling fouls when it gets personal, but they're making sure that arguments are being made and that people aren't getting stifled, what happens? You may have never been in a meeting like that. They're amazing. They're amazing. One, there's one meeting on our staff that everybody remembers, totally remembers. It was a two and a half hour meeting about whether or not to go to two services and how to do it. Almost about half the staff cried at some point during that meeting. Right? Um, but we really thrashed it out. And most people would, most of the, almost everyone in the staff, even the people who didn't get their way, most of them would look back and, and say, that was, a, that was a good meeting. Or at least I wasn't bored. Because, and here's why. Because vitality and order are meant to go together in ev- almost everything. They're, and it's not a problem to be solved. You can't say, well, let's just be vital and forget the order. Let's just be orderly and forget the vitality. No, it's a tension that has to be managed, right? Same thing is true of a fire, right? You cannot throw a match in an empty pit. There has to be fuel, right? But what's the, what's the biggest problem that little boys and little girls have if you tell them to build a fire and they've never done it before? Do you know what it is? They smother the fire. They build it in such a way that no air can get in. And so, because they've watched you put the paper in the bottom, and they know to do that, right? But they don't know that you've got to create air intakes on the side and stuff like that so that you stack things in such a way so that air can flow through freely. Because you've got to have fuel, and the fuel has to be structured in such a way that's close enough to each other so fire can spread from fuel to fuel to fuel to fuel, right? But you've got to have enough air to come in so that combustion can happen. And if either one of those are missing, it's not going to work. You don't get fire, right? And in all of the—and this is true. What's true in these things is actually true spiritually as well. That a vital church, a vital Christian life, has the same categorization. In relationship to vitality and order, it's not a problem you can solve. It's not something you can simply solve with policies. It's a tension that's going to have to be managed because both are critically important. Now, if we look at the message about Jesus, if we look at the gospel, we should recognize that this basically makes sense with the gospel. I mean, Jesus, um, first of all, in relationship to us, the Bible, when the Bible calls us sinners, the idea isn't to say, oh, you're a sinner, you do bad stuff. That's true, but that's not the half of it, is it? The idea is is that we suffer under depravity. we're, We're particularly broken. And one of the things we need to recognize about that is, is that there is a dullness that comes from that, a deadness that we're prone to. Um, 
in C.S. Lewis's book, Abolition of Man, in the second chapter called Men Without Chests, he talks about university professors he worked with talking about students, and, he, and, and, they, and he'd say, he said, the professor said, you know, the, the, the students are so excitable, and they're like, they're I'm, I'm concerned they're going to become fanatics. I feel like I got to, you know, ease them off a little bit and get them down there. And, and, and Lewis said, and Lewis's response was, you know, for every one student I've met that I was afraid they're going to turn into a fanatic, I've met ten that are so dull and dead and apathetic that some fire needs to be lit under them for something that's actually good, true, and beautiful. And he said, that's what I teach to. I teach to inflame hearts. Because the danger is not that we'd be a world of fanatics. The danger is that there'd be two fanatics in the whole world and everybody'd be too apathetic to stop them. He didn't say that, but that's just a way you can say it. Um, and, and on top of the fact that we are given, because of our nature, to deadness and apathy, the gospel is full of this, of life. I mean, Jesus said, I have come that you would have life. And he didn't just say, so you'd be alive. He said, so that you could have life abundantly or to the full. That is, that the life that we're given isn't just, just the fact that we get to be alive or even just stay alive. I mean, what is eternal life about anyway? Is it just the fact that if your life stinks, it could still last forever? It's not, right? I mean, the idea is, is that there is not just an in, increased quantity of life, but there is a fundamental qualitative change of life with Jesus. That Jesus is inviting us to a great kind of life. Because the gospel is full of vitality, because Jesus is full of vitality. He preached vitality in his execution. He was so vital. But then that's also true of discipline. I mean, there's nobody disciplined as Jesus. What gets somebody to embrace a cross? What creates that kind of drivenness? That kind of focus? Jesus was a focused, driven, disciplined person. He once said in John, he said, I don't do anything that I do not see my father doing. What I see my father doing, I do. I don't do anything else. Because he was obedient, he was focused on obedience, and he was, he was pointing to that for us as well. I was listening to a podcast the other day um, in which this guy was interviewed, Paul Tuff, on this book, um, How Children Succeed by Russ Roberts. And they were discussing why people succeed. And Tuff was saying that when you look at the, at the parenting literature, he said there's a really interesting phenomenon because most people really believe that people succeed um, based on their, like, their IQ and their smarts, like their, their, their individual quality. And that's, that's partly true. That's partly true. But he said there was this interesting study in the 70s where, they, you know, IQ studies were really big in the 70s, and there were some people that were kind of quizzical about whether or not they really worked like they should because they were supposed to just tell us the capacity of people, right? So these, these researchers said, okay, so if IQ tests totally tell us the capacity of people, we should not be able to incentivize kids to improve their scores, right? We could give them incentives, they could work harder, but their, their IQ scores won't go up, right? So they basically came up with a study where they gave, simply just gave kids M&Ms, Right? To see if they could do better. And so they give a kid an M&M, and what they found with was for a very large percentage of students, their IQ went up about 10 points. Or 10, 10%, 10%, I think. Which was not supposed to be possible. And what that showed was, actually even how smart you are is partly determined by how hard you're willing to work your own brain. How hard you're willing to work your own capacities. And so there was a sense in which discipline or, or something like that was, was, was built into the general capacity of the brain to simply solve problems. It's sort of raw intelligence. Does that make sense? And 
And so a little later on um, at the University of Minnesota, um, even though I'm glad the gophers died, they did give us the Honeycrisp apple. God bless them. And they, there were some researchers there that said, okay, so what actually makes it so that kids succeed? Is it nurture? Is it nature? Because here, here's, this, here's the trouble people are finding. If you get around upper middle class people, they're, they are constantly a tither about their kids succeeding inc- slightly incrementally more. So how do I get my kid who's going to go to Dartmouth to actually go to Yale? How do I get my kid who might go to, you know, UW-Stevens Point to UW-Lacrosse? I mean, how do I, I mean, how do I, you know, whatever. I, don't, I don't know which ones are better, okay? I just, I'm just making this up. But the idea of, like, to just kind of get them— I went to SUNY Oswego, okay, so don't be offended. Um, how do we—and here, and here's, what, here's what this research is finding. You can't. You can't. Parents spend all this money, all this effort, all this time trying to get their little middle class kids to, to take a step up. And the reality is, is that it's, it's just their genetics. They're going to they're gonna do, they're going to not. But here's what they also found. When they go into poor neighborhoods, and, and a lot is focused on really poor kids um, with, in, in the complex problems that they have, what they find is for a lot of poor kids, their output jumps dramatically. And so people are kind of quizzical about this. Why is this the case? Why is it not just their genes and poverty, but why is it so with— mil- and, here's, and here's why. And Paul Tuff argued this. He said, what seems to be is, is that in certain environments, your genetics can't matter enough because something gets in their way. You need a certain amount to get, to, to get what your genes can get you and then that's what you are. So in a middle-class home where, you know, the family's together and the kid's doing fine and they're fed and so they're, you know, they're not malnourished and, you know, they have, they're taught basic self-control and they go to school and they learn what they need to learn, getting them from this here to here is an activity in futility. They are what they are. But with a kid in which their genetics would be malformed because of environmental things that wouldn't let their genes work, doing things can be extraordinarily helpful. Now, how does this apply to this? Are you wondering that yet? Um, I don't know. I'm just kidding. The issue here is, is what Tuff says. He says the number one predictor, when these University of Wisconsin people did the study, the number one predictor of how well somebody would do actually was not their IQ. So they actually started with families in the womb. They went, they got a bunch of families. They started before the child was even born. And then they tracked them through into adulthood. And there was very little correlation between IQ and success. Isn't that interesting? You would think there'd be—he said that the closest correlation was between IQ and what he called conscientiousness. That is, people who have a passion and a drive for something. They're they're, they're emotionally connected with their passion about it, and they have the drive and self-control to bring it about. Now, the the old cultures that we think we're so far beyond used to call this the virtues— the virtues, that is, to believe in and care about the right thing and have the self-discipline and self-control to see it done. Right? So we call it conscientiousness to slip the virtues past the modern people who think we're so far beyond those, the old folks, right? And the word that Tuff gives it, which I think is a really good word for us, is the word grit. People who have grit succeed. That is, that they have, they have a, a passion of vitality. They care about it. It's not mere self-control. People who have mere self-control will ultimately give up. They will, people who have merely self-control are the people who do everything right and then they just tank one day. Right? And people who don't have self-control and just have passion, they just, they're constantly imploding all the way along. 
But who makes it to the end? And Tuff argues, and I would say that he's a couple thousand years too late, but very helpful, is that it's grit that gets people through. That is, to have the right passions and the right disciplines coming together. That is, vitality and order properly tensioned and managed against each other. But the thing about Scripture and the thing about the gospel is this. The gospel doesn't just tell us this is the case. Jesus crucified and risen can actually produce this. And I would argue no one can produce it like the crucified and risen Jesus. The one who is the most vital who ever lived and the toughest who's ever lived, the one with the most grit who has ever existed, is the one who can not just show us and not just argue that it's necessary, but actually produce it in us. So let me say a couple words about the church and then a few words about how Jesus produces that in us. Um, there's two things that this passage focuses on. One is um, that, that we need to build vitality. We cannot afford to not care about vitality. We cannot be, we cannot be a rule people. We cannot be like, we're going to do it all right, and this is how you should parent, and this is how you should act, and this is what you should say and shouldn't say, and this is how you should, and this is who's this, and this is who's going to be in this ministry, and you can't be at this until you've been here this long, and you can't. Now, there's some of that, maybe a few policies here and there. Like, in this passage, Paul gives three rules, but only three, and pretty loose ones, Right? I mean, if you look at this passage, honestly, I think that there, there are just some order nightmares in this passage that Paul does not clean up. For example, I mean, think about this. Is the scene that Paul is describing any sort of ordered situation that most of us would be comfortable with? I mean, think about it. What does he actually say in the passage? He's like, now when you guys come together, you're all going to have something you're going to want to share. Somebody's going to have a song, and somebody's going to want to say a word of instruction, somebody's going to speak in tongues, and somebody's going to have a prophecy, and then you should have a couple, three at a time, and then somebody should judge it. And then if one person is prophesying, but then somebody over goes, oh, I think I have a prophecy. This guy just should courteously stop, let this guy come up and prophesy, then this person can finish, then you can judge that, and then we can do this. And I mean, what would you do if we had church like that? You would flip out, right? I mean, you'd be like, what's happening? Who's doing what? Are you going to let him do that? What about this? They said that last week. That guy's a dork. We know that from like three weeks ago when he said that thing that was really dumb. And what about this? And how about the, what's going with this? And how is that? Cause, right? That's, I mean, it, it, this is still a pretty crazy scene, isn't it? It's still a pretty crazy scene. But yet he said, like, there's a lot of people, like, honestly, don't some of us go, listen, see, you know, the Bible says do everything decently and in order. That's from this passage, folks, okay? I mean, decently and in order is a bit of a relative statement. And so why is that? Why doesn't he just shut down speaking in tongues? Why doesn't he just shut down prophecy? Why doesn't he just shut that stuff down? He could have— could have. But he explicitly says, he's like, I wish all you speak in tongues. I speak in tongues more than any of you. And don't forbid speaking in tongues and let people prophesy. And you should seek that gift. And you should... Paul, I thought you were trying to get things under control. Well, he is trying to get things under control, and, he, and that's great. But he's not at the cost of vitality. Not at the cost of vitality. That's just legalism. I mean, that's not going to do anything. That's just going to die. And so, and so here's the implications I think that we need to think about as a church together. We have got to be a place where people can try stuff. We have to be. We have to be a place where people can try stuff. So, um, let me ask you a question. If you knew I wasn't going to preach next week, would you come? Because I, I know there are people in this church that if I, they knew I wasn't preaching next week, they wouldn't come. But 
what does that what does that say in a body where we've got to let people try stuff? I mean, unless we're a place in which, um, not listen, not all the goods and services are going to be consumer level here, are they? The civic life of America is dying out. There used to be this whole structure of American society in which people did things voluntarily. And it wasn't perfect. They weren't, it wasn't iPhones. It was just people just did things, and it wasn't perfect, but it was fairly effective. It got people what they needed to, and, and that was just how it did. People just, they, they'd see a problem, they'd get some people together, they'd go fix it. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't perfect, but it was a solution. And it was helpful, right? But you see, more and more we're coming to the place where everything has to be done by an expert, everything has to be done by somebody who's really good at it, and everything should be done on consumer-level grade outputs. And here's the problem with that. You have no idea how expensive that is, and you're not willing to pay for it. That's the fact. That, that's a fact. That's, that has nothing to do with Democrats and Republicans, but that's why we have that big a debt. Right? Nothing to do with the parties. Has to do with, we want this level of stuff. Everything has to be done by professionals, but, but we don't really want to pay for it. That's why churches that aren't vital in terms of volu- volunteerism are always strapped financially. Big, huge churches with millions and millions of dollars in their budget, and, and they, they don't give millions to missions, or to fix poverty, or to do anything like that. Why? Because they can't afford to. Why can't they afford to? Because they have to produce everything on a consumer level, which means they have to hire professional staff to do everything. But then the people who don't do the thing, but just receive the goods and services, they pay what they think it's worth. It's always less than it costs, usually about half. So what happens? The church gets bigger and bigger, it gets more and more and more strapped financially. And so you build a church with thousands of people and you can't give away and a church planner comes to you and says, it's going to cost a half million dollar to plant this church. Can I count on you for 50 grand? And, we, and you believe in the guy, you believe in the plant, you believe in the spot, you believe in the thing, but the answer is no, we don't have any money. Why? Because we're not trying stuff. We're hiring people to try stuff. We don't want to pay for it. Who does? And what do you have? You have a codependent church in which ministry is received but not done. People aren't trying things. They're not expressing their spiritual gifts. They're, they're concerned that people, they're not invited or they're going to fail. They think that everybody expects them to do consumer-level grade stuff. Listen, your kid shouldn't have that interesting a Sunday school teacher. Why should they? It's good for your kid to learn how to concentrate. You know, that you watch too much TV, your brain forgets what real life is. Right? I mean, it's, it's a problem. It's a, it's a problem for us. You know, non-reality is more high definition than reality. It's a problem. And so if we invest our kids in ourselves in this idea that life should be high definition all the time, we are going to implode. Vitality goes away. We never become who we're meant to be. We've become these, these passive cultural vampires sucking the blood out of anybody who's still vital until they die. And what do you get? You get 90% or 80% of American pastors' wives who wish their husbands did something else. That's what they check. That's what 80% of American pastors' wives, that's what they check. I wish my husband did something else. Why? Because he got into this because he was vital, and now he's a shell. That's what the church is doing to him, right? Or you get people who they just, they've never served in the church. They're like, well, I wouldn't be very good at that. Nobody's good at it. Nobody's good at anything, okay? Of course you wouldn't be good at it. I mean, we, we need to quit saying, listen, you know, if, if you didn't do this because you didn't think you'd be good at it, you're right. You know, it's kind of like people are like, well, I don't know. I don't know how if I'm that, if I'm real godly. You're not. But are you going to get in the game? That's the question, right? It's like, 
if I didn't preach, if look, look, if I wouldn't get married and preach until I was a good preacher, we would not have church. Okay? If people didn't serve in children's until they were fabulous experts in childhood development, we wouldn't have anybody in children's. And if nobody would volunteer with the youth until they got adolescent issues, we'd have nobody volunteering in youth. And if you didn't, if you didn't help the poor until you'd read all the books on making sure that everything you do is truly helpful and not codependent, and you'd never do anything with the poor. And if you didn't, and if you didn't, and if you did, you'd do nothing. I mean, can you imagine if our greeters were like, well, I don't know if I have the interpersonal sales skills necessary for greeting. I mean, God forbid I might shake the guy's hand slightly wrong. I mean, vitality requires two things. Centrally, you've got to get the heck out of the way and let people try stuff. You've got to be okay if you're in leadership with things not at consumer grade. And what that means is those who are consuming have to also be okay with things not at consumer grade. Your small group leader may not be fantastic. That's by design. It's by design. Now, you have to be a little more fantastic. That's good for you. Right? Now, if you're, if you're small group leaders— consistently horrible, then we may be able to find out that that's not that person's spiritual gift and help them figure out where their spiritual gift is. That's why we're doing this series. But vitality requires an acceptance of reality. I didn't intend for that to rhyme. It just does, okay? Vitality requires an acceptance of reality. Life isn't high definition. We are real people. We're not that good at stuff. You can't do everything on the expert level. We can't do everything perfectly scientifically. Half of the social science we know is wrong. Right? It's just, you just got to get in there and do it. You just got to get in there and do it. Right? And that's one of the reasons why— have you wondered why we're now in our third year of the gospel— First year is like, let's spend a year in the gospel. Second year is like, let's do another year in the gospel. Let's do, let's do another year in the gospel. Why? Because though we want vitality in everything we do, out of love to build up the church, vitality, real vitality, only comes from one place. Jesus. The kind of vitality we're looking for only comes from Jesus. That's why the church can never only— In the center of things, the gospel has to be constantly going out. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Why? Because it's the gospel that builds vitality. I have to believe that if I organized everything incredibly at this church, and we were all organizational geniuses, you still would not volunteer for stuff. I have to believe that if I will get out of your way— and inspire you that the gospel is great, that Jesus is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to us and to the world, that that will do something in you, and you will try something. And it might not even be in this church. It might just be the way you do your work, and it might be how you raise kids, or it might be how you, what you choose to do, or whether you—I don't know what it'll be. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be something— And one of the things, the reasons why this is important in relationship to the church is because vitality begets vitality. If, if there's a community of people who have this vitality and we're together in this thing called the church, this, the assembly, the movement of Jesus, and we express it through our spiritual gifts, what happens? It's contagious. We get vitalized. It's like a circulatory system, right? Okay, we got to move on. Second is to build order. We have to build vitality. We need to build order. I'm going to just say a couple of things about this. Vitality without order 
um, produces disorder in two ways. One, it's diseased, and in two, it's disorganized. It's diseased in the sense that dysfunction is always the loudest thing. And so if we've got all kinds of vitality, all kinds of people doing stuff, a lot of people are going to be doing stuff, some people are going to do stuff that's just sinful and mean and ugly. And what you end up getting is if there's no order, if there's nobody whose job it is to step up, you, two people can destroy a whole church. I remember I worked with a guy one time who was, who was doing a PhD in something else, and he had been a pa- pastor at two churches, and he said, I'll never be a pastor again. And I asked him why. He said, because nobody will fight for the church. Two, three people could destroy a church. And there's nobody, people know what they need to do, but there is nobody who will stand up and fight for the church. Which, which I was actually pretty thankful because I've seen that happen. I've seen dysfunction and people just shrug, shrug their shoulders and be like, ah, what's the big deal? Um, and it destroyed churches. But I've actually also been in a couple of situations where men and women with real guts stood up and said something. Um, and there's some of you who are here at High Point who kind of like what's happening, and you're like, hey, this is kind of cool church. We like it. And you've been here the last couple of years. Um, and you don't know that a few years before that, that's exactly what happened here. The church was coming apart, and there were some people who stayed and fought and spoke and acted and did, and, and that mattered enormously on what happened for this church to keep its heart and survive and hopefully be doing better. The other thing, though, besides just disease is that disorganized. You can have a thousand truly alive things but accomplishing nothing. What makes, what makes all of us more than the sum of our individual parts? I mean, how, how do we become a one another? How do we become—you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't call us a church. He never used that word. Church, is a, church comes from a German word for basilica. He called us the assembly or the people or the gathering. That is, the movement— that he was going to create a movement. It was going to meet in local assemblies. Those would then sometimes have buildings around them. And it's okay to call that group of people the church if you know what that means. But he was focused on a movement that he was creating that was meant to be more than the sum of its parts, that was meant to be focused. And he, he said that when that happened, the gates of hell couldn't stand against the church or the gathering or the movement. And you see— Without order, without somebody being in charge, without some kind of leadership, we don't ever get organized. We don't ever become something that can go somewhere. We're just a bunch of dots. And that's really difficult in an era in which we're, we're initially and just immediately skeptical about leadership, about anybody who has any kind of authority to do anything. Right? We, we immediately get our backs up. Most of us think we know how to be chiefs, but we don't know how to be Indians. We just—we don't know how to follow. We're not good at following, and we don't cherish following. But if there's going to be leadership, the vast majority of us have to be followers on some level in some roles. I mean, there's a lot of times at home—I like to lead. Listen, I like to be in charge. I like to lead. But there's a lot of times at home where I haven't been around— I've been around, and I have to switch roles and follow my wife in something because she knows what just happened, and she knows what system we've set up. And, and even to be in charge, I still have to figure it out. You just have to follow sometimes. And you see, un- until we realize the importance of order and the importance of leadership in the church and that this thing is ordained by Jesus, and he wants there to be authority in the church and in his movement, then we're not going to take really seriously the call to be followers We'll say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm following any people. Well, then you don't like the idea of the church, and I don't know what you're going to do with that, but Jesus is kind of into that idea. Or so he says. 
which means a, cu- a couple of things for us. Um, and I'm going to skip a couple other points here, but one is, I remember some years ago I went to a summit where Bill Hybels was talking, and he said the church rises and falls on leadership. The church rises and falls on leadership. And I remember thinking, how, how, what, that's such a secular idea, isn't it? I mean, the church doesn't rise and fall on leadership. The church rises and falls on the gospel. The church rises and falls on the presence of the Holy Spirit. It rises and falls on the providence of God and people embracing and loving the scriptures. That's, the, church, the, church, the church rises and falls on the sacrifice of people. That, and, then, and, and all that's true. And then I realized later, sometime later, that he was right. He was right. Because for the church to not be diseased and disorganized, for the church to really be a unified and ordered body, a group of people managing the, the, the tension between vitality and order, that requires leadership. That requires people who will, who will fight for the church. That requires people who—and here's why. Because you cannot fix this with policies. You cannot make a policy manual thick enough to make all the order work, and yet it'll kill the vitality. That's what everybody says about business cycles, right? Is, th- this, is, this is the life of a church, right? Everybody has a lot of passion, and so the church, boom, it starts growing, and then the passion kind of drops, but the administration increases, and the church eventually declines and dies. Everybody goes, well, that's because people try to control everything. Well, is it that? Or is it that they didn't have any organization in place, and so their passion got burned out? And so the point leaders, when they got burnt out because there wasn't any order, they drop off and then the whole thing starts to tank. Data doesn't tell us. But you see, that's what tends to happen. Oh, thanks. That's what, that's what tends to happen is we, we have this issue where we don't want to be followers and we don't want to have to fight, but somebody's got to lead and fight. That's, that's got to be somebody's job. That's one of the reasons why I think it's fun that, that High Point is a congregational church. Because in our polity, we get to pick who we're going to follow. We nominate and elect our own elders. We nominate, or we elect and we fire our own pastors. And it, it's, the reason we do that is the same reason um, guys have to ask girls if they'll marry them. Because if she's signing up for that, it ought to be her choice. Right? Because once she's in, she's in. And same thing with the church. I mean, um, w- when we say, listen, I'm part of this church, well, well, good. And there is always some autonomy that we retain because Jesus is king and lord. And if the shepherds go another way, then we've got to stay with Jesus. But, but God has always been intently interested in leadership. That's why in Ezekiel, when his people are going under, one of the people that he condemns and attacks is the leaders. He says the shepherds have been eating the sheep, not tending them. And I'm, and I'm going to destroy them for that. Because God has always been interested in building up leaders. And it's not just the elders or the pastors of the church, but in all the areas of ministry. Wherever, wherever somebody is trying something, there's going to be a leader. Whenever there's two people doing something, there's a leader. And so we have to be a, a church that puts people into things before they have a track record in them. That allows people to try stuff, not just that's on the bottom level, but that's at some of the upper levels in terms of pulling things off. We've got to allow people to be leaders, and we've got to—and we have to choose for ourselves leaders who are going to do the job of leadership. And one of the things we need to think about is, is this person vital? And is, is this person ha- ordered? And therefore, does this person have the grit necessary to be a leader? Every time you nominate or vote for an elder, you should be thinking about that. 
Does this person have the grit necessary? Do they care about the vitality? And do they care about the order? And is this person capable of holding them in tension? Because friends, we do a lot of that at elder meetings, trying to figure out what to do. And the good news right now is, I think we're, when a moment would come up that, that our elder board would be faced with whether or not to fight for the heart of the church, I think that the 13 men on that board will. They fight me all the time. Right? But this is also the reason why, and you've heard me use this language before, the church needs to be decentralized and aligned. And, and so, for example, so, so, like we've, we've been, we've been um, two years ago or a year, year and a half quarter ago, um, we, did, we, did, we launched small groups again. Why did we launch small groups again? Just to make you come to church twice a week somehow, you know? That wasn't the reason. The reason we launched small groups again was to decentralize the ministry of the church. To put 35 people doing pastoral ministry rather than just one or two. Right? To have, to have situations in which you'd be responsible for more. Right? You're part of a smaller group. There's less place to hide. Everybody's a little more involved. That's important. Just a few weeks ago, we launched the hub. What's the point of the hub? Is it just, is it the Google-like monster in which we can extract specific information from you so that we can market annoying advertisements to you when you try to watch videos? Right? Is that this is all about? No. No, and is, but is that a problem? Is that a tension we're going to have to manage? That if you put in information that allows you to access opportunities that we could misuse it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's not a problem to be solved. That's a tension to be managed. The problem to be solved was God has given his people gifts and they can't connect them with the best opportunities. How do we do that in a decentralized, blind way? The hub. Small groups. And why do we have this worship service, but yet ministries? Well, why is this, why is this moment the center of our community life together? Because if we're going to be decentralized, we'd better be aligned on something. We'd better be aligned on the gospel. We'd better be aligned on Jesus. We'd better be aligned on what that means. We're all going to apply it in different ways, and ministries are great for that. There lot, ministries are different ways to apply in a decentralized way the gospel by trying something. But then we come here to make sure that at the bottom we are all aligned like a laser. And that only works if we're aligned on the one who gives vitality and order. Because if you think about all the difficulties in your life, they all come down to vitality and order. They all come down to temptations to either screw up or give up. Right? I mean, think about it. Think about every trial you have and every temptation you have. Every one of them is a temptation either to screw up or give up. Screw up a lack of order and discipline. Give up a lack of vitality. It's a breakdown of grit. And I can talk to you about grit, but there's only one thing that produces it. Or only one person that produces it. Jesus, the risen Christ. He produces it. He's the example of it. He is the one who gives real life through faith. He's the one who pours out the spirit of life in the Holy Spirit. He is the one that directs us in the vitality and order, and he is the one who can bring vitality wherever you are. No matter how dead you feel, no matter how disordered your life is, you need the one who has grit. You need, you need Jesus, and you need to either apply it in a new, him in a new way and come to him, him on new ground and on his terms, or you need to come to him for the first time. And, and when we do that, we will be a gritty people. The people with the virtues necessary to manage the tension of vitality and order in such a way as to be the church in a way that, like Jesus said, the gates of hell 
would not be able to stand against it. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd help us to be a people who take to heart the need to focus on vitality and order. Help us to be a leading people, a following people, a people coming to you, seeking that our spiritual, our, our zeal would never be lacking, but to keep our spiritual fervor serving you, that we'd be constantly coming to the gospel for our vitality and our order, to see Jesus as the one who is the perfect embodiment of this tension managed and lived out. And help us to be a place where people can try things, a place where people don't expect things to be perfect, but, but see the vitality in people attempting and doing. And help us to be a church that is strong so that, in the words of this passage, everybody, through the application of all the gifts, could be encouraged and strengthened and instructed. In Jesus' name, amen.